you're listening to the Deeper Christian Bible Study Series in the Book of Ephesians. Thank you for joining me, Nathan Johnson, on an in-depth, verse-by-verse study of this incredible book by Paul. Now, let's dive into the lesson for today. Uh, What I like to do, again, is just read this prayer, uh, since we've been doing it every single time anyway, uh, and you've probably forgotten it, or at least I'm trying to help you memorize it or something. Uh, So if you have your Bibles, let's just read uh, Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14. Uh, This is what Paul writes. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we could ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Uh, over the last couple of uh, studies, we've been looking at verses, uh, verse 20s very specifically. And uh, again, just for the sake of a quick review, Paul is saying that God is able. So it does not matter the circumstance. It does not matter the impossibility. It does not matter the, the trial or the, or the struggle that you're going through. You need to remember that God is able and that God loves impossibilities. That he just, he, he loves to stack the deck against himself to build the problem, you know, or let the problem increase to the point where it seems like there's absolutely no hope. Why? So that when he comes through, he gets all the credit. And of course, Paul says that he's not just able, but he's able to go beyond. And again, when we we're looking at this idea of the beyond, it's not just beyond. In fact, there's a fourfold emphasis of this idea beyond. It's beyond, beyond, over and above, and beyond all that you could ask or imagine. So if you could take your best case scenario, if you could say, okay, what is, hey, what is the best thing that God can do in this, this problem, and in this scenario, in this circumstance, God may or may not do that, but he is able to go beyond, beyond, over and above, and beyond that in your life. So would you trust him? Will you just, will you rest in the reality of what he is wanting to do? Now, we looked at last time, all of that is according to the power that empowers us. That there is this overwhelming power that lies within you, which is the very spirit of the Lord. And so here is this incredible power that is working and enabling and energizing your life. And as a believer, what if you would just live from that place? What if, what if we, as, as Christians, would be empowered by the very power of God himself? And this is not a power that you control. Uh, this is not a power that you manipulate. This is a, this is a power that controls you. Uh, this is the spirit of the Lord that, that literally dictates your life and moves your life and empowers your life and is the new engine and the very source of your life. Now, all that comes in to the whole point of that verse 21. Again, in verse 20 and 21, you could say is the doxology of the prayer. Uh, this is the, the praise. This is the declaration. This is the wow of the prayer itself. So let me just read verse 20 and 21 again, and I want to look 
very specifically at verse 21. Paul says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. To him be the glory. To him be the glory. What is the whole purpose of this thing? In fact, if you want to summarize the first three chapters of Ephesians, in fact, if you want to summarize the entire book of Ephesians, what, what is going on? What is this whole thing about? Hey, why is my position in Christ Jesus? What is God doing in the church? Why is all that taking place? Well, it's for his glory. It's for his purpose. It's, it's for his renown. Now, that word glory, it's the, the Greek word doxa, D-O-X-A, doxa. And doxa, again, is this idea of fame, praise, splendor, majesty, honor, renown, all that kind of stuff. In fact, I love this definition of, of doxa. It says, in the Old Testament, doxa was primarily the brightness or the radiance of God's presence. To give God glory is not to add something to him, Rather, it is an active acknowledgement or extolling, which means uh, praising enthusiastically, of who he is and what he has already done. So in the Old Testament, when we praise God, when we give God glory, it is a declaration of the radiance of his presence. And again, I I love that idea that we, we cannot add anything to his presence. We cannot add anything to his splendor. We cannot add anything to his his majesty, and his glory. It's merely when we give God glory, we're merely declaring what he already is. We're declaring him. Isn't that a neat idea? And so Paul is saying, to him be the glory. So all the praise, glory, and majesty is found in Jesus. Uh, And then he says, to all generations. That's a long time. Have you, ever, have you ever thought about that? To all generations? This means not one single generation is left out where, where God is not supposed to receive the praise. That every single generation is to declare his wonder and his majesty. And if you're like, well, that's a really long time. Paul adds to that forever and ever. So if you thought gener- all generations was going to be a long time, this, this is not just for the now. This is the, for the forever stuff. And that word forever and ever is the ion, ion, uh, the, wor- the words in Greek, this aeon or ion, uh, and it has this idea of uh, forever. Isn't that brilliant? <laughs> it's like forever, never, 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 never. So in, you know, 10 billion gazillion years from now, this is still going to hold true. It's going to be all for his glory. Why? Because this is forever and ever stuff. Uh, that term forever and ever, I, th- I just, w- I looked it up. I was like, where else does this show up? Because I, I know I've heard that. But uh, 22 times in the New Testament, forever and ever shows up. Uh, it, it often shows up in the book of Revelation. That's where it predominantly shows up. But the forever and ever language, uh, five of those 22 times speaks of God reigning. And how is God going to reign? He's going to reign forever and ever. So there's never going to be a time where God's not in control. Uh, 14 of those times is in the same kind of context as this, where it's talking about the glory or the honor of God, and it says, to him be the glory forever and ever, 14 times. 
So obviously this idea of the doxa, this praise and majesty and honor and renown idea, that is to go on forever and ever 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 and ever. Are you getting this? And ever and ever and ever. Why? Because he deserves it. He is worthy of all glory, praise, and honor. Uh, this, this word, this forever and ever idea, <clears throat> shows up 23 times in the Old Testament as well. And let me just give you two of them. Uh, in both of these examples, it shows up multiple times. But in Psalm 45, it shows up twice. Uh, and <clears throat> in a couple of the verses, verse 6 and verse 17 of Psalm 45, it says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Again, he's reigning forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the people will give you thanks forever and ever. So what are we going to be doing? Wow, he is going to be reigning forever and ever. And we as his people are going to be constantly coming in thanksgiving and praise and adoration. Well, how long are we going to have to do that? Yeah, don't quit worrying about the time because it's going to be forever. But when we actually see the reality of what God has done, why wouldn't you want to give thanksgiving to him forever and ever and ever and ever? Because forever is not going to be long enough to declare his overwhelming majesty and praise and goodness. He's that good. Psalm 145, uh, several times it has this idea of forever and ever. Uh, David says, I will extol you. Again, this idea of praising enthusiastically. I will extol you, my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you, and I will praise your name forever and ever. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and all, and all flesh will bless his holy name forever and ever. So think about this idea. Paul is picking up this language that's used all throughout Scripture, and he's saying, to him be the glory in all generations forever and ever and ever. Amen. Amen. Which means there is never going to be a single moment in history or in future stuff where, God is, where, where this is not all going to be about God's praise and his glory. Which probably tells you your life should be wrapped up in this. In other words, if all history past and all future forward is wrapped up in the glory of God, shouldn't your life be wrapped up in the glory of God as well? That should just make sense, doesn't it? Now, it is interesting. Paul says, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. Now, the in Christ Jesus makes total sense to me because Jesus is God. And if God, this is, we're talking about God's glory, his radiance, his presence, his majesty, that idea. Well, it makes sense then that God's glory is demonstrated and seen in Jesus. Why? Because he's God. So Hebrews 1.3, right? Jesus is the radiance of his glory. So you take all the fullness of God and the fullness of God is in Jesus, Right? The Godhead is demonstrated, is in, showcased in Jesus. Why? He's Jesus. He's God himself in the flesh. So it makes sense then, all God's glory then is seen and demonstrated in Jesus. 
So again, let's listen to Hebrews 1.3. He, Jesus, is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. And when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Amen. So Jesus is the highest and the greatest expression of God's glory. Why? Because that's what we see. So when you look at Jesus, it makes sense. All right, yeah, the fullness of God's glory, whoop, right there. And you don't look convinced. So let me give you a few other verses. This just kicks and giggles. This is just for fun. Uh, 2 Timothy 4.18. Paul says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, Jude 24, 25 says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Who's he talking about? Jesus. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory. Think about this. You can stand in his, in his glory, blameless, with great joy, to, our only, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. So you realize he has all the glory. Or perhaps one of my all-time favorite verses, Romans eleven thirty six, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. He has all the glory. So I found it interesting when you came in, when I looked at the passage, it says, now to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. And I was like, Paul, what are you doing? Shouldn't just say to him be all the glory in Jesus. Amen. I've been like, amen. That makes, that makes total sense to me. So I was wrestling with this idea of to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. And uh, I, I decided I'd look up some scholars, and, and I just want to read you a little paragraph, because I, I really liked the way that this scholar articulated this idea of what does it mean for the church to have God's glory. So listen, listen to this. Uh, the scholar says, <clears throat> the wording, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus, is unusual. <laughs> That's not a good sign when a scholar's like, all right, this is weird. You know, like this, is a, this is not normal. But he says, it does not imply, so this, it does not imply that the church and Christ Jesus are placed on, the, on a level with each other. God is to be glorified in the church because the church, comprising of Jews and Gentiles, is his masterpiece of grace. It is through the church that his wisdom is made known to the spiritual forces of the heavenly realm. The heavens declare the glory of God but even greater glory is shown by his handiwork in the community of reconciliation. This community, moreover, consists of human beings who are united in Christ, members of his body in whom Christ dwells. The glory of God in the church cannot be divorced from his glory in Christ Jesus. The glory of God in the face of Christ has illuminated the hearts of his people and is reflected in the glory which, in life as well as in word, they ascribe to God through Christ. So I really love that idea that, well, how is the glory of God then being seen in the church? Well, it's because of what all that God has done in the church. And, and it's because of the fact that 
God has taken his radiance and all of his praise and all of his amazing life and, and he's done something so radical in the church that he wants to showcase his goodness and his grace through us, his body, to the entire world, which demonstrates all that he's done in us, which therefore gives him glory. Does that make any sense? If you can take the Jews and the Gentiles, as chapter 2 says, and bring them together and bring forth peace of these two groups into one, the only explanation you have for that is Jesus, which means he gets all the glory. Uh, when you look at earlier chapter 2, and you start to realize that your life is full of sin and darkness and depravity, and you are dead spiritually, and yet Christ came in and alivened you he made you alive in Christ, right? God, God has really done something. He made you alive. And then he seated you in the heavenly realms at the right hand of the Father. When all of that takes place, you have to conclude, wow, I, I have no part of this. This is all for his glory. This is all for his majesty. This is all for him. So he gets all the glory. When you look at the blessings in chapter 1 and start to realize that, wow, I have been given all things that I need for life and godliness, well, then he gets all the glory of that. Does this make any sense? So isn't it any thought that we as the body of Christ get to showcase the very glory of God? That, that Jesus is the fullness of, of God's radiance, of his glory, of his majesty, and yet we bear the very life of Jesus in the, in the, in the church, which means we get to bear his glory. Now, we are not the glory, but we get to bear the glory, and we get to declare of his wonder and his majesty and his life and his radiance and and now we, as his ambassadors, get to go forth into this world and say, Whoa! God is good. He wins. And we, we get to really declare of his glory to this world. That's exciting. You guys awake this morning? It's like, man, this is good news, and you guys look like you're miserable. <clears throat> uh, so let's make this personal. Obviously, if the church is to bear the radiance and the glory of God, it has to start with you. Because how is the how is a church going to bear and demonstrate the glory of God if you're not living it? It's interesting as you come into Romans chapter three, there is a heavy condemnation upon every single human, and you know the verse well. But Romans three twenty three: For all have sinned. And fallen short of what? The glory of God. Isn't that interesting? That we have fallen short of his glory. And it seems like when, when God created Adam and Eve, I love how Ian Thomas explains this. He says that here is an invisible God who made a physical visible man to declare to the physical visible world the invisible God. In other words, humanity was made to showcase the realities and the glory of God Almighty. And what did they do? They chose independence and selfishness rather than the very life of Christ, the life of God. And what have we done? We've done the exact same thing. And we too have fallen short of, of that glory, of, the, of that presence, of that life. Well, what hope do we have? Not much outside of Jesus. There's none. In fact, do you realize it seems like, according to Romans 3.23, that God's glory is the standard and the reality of which we've fallen from. 
And again, it wasn't our glory, but we were to showcase the reality of his glory. And so if, if we have all sinned and we've fallen short, well, what was that standard then? The glory. What was the tabernacle? Isn't it a neat thought? Here's the tabernacle and then later the temple. And the presence of God comes down and the glory, the Shekinah glory of God fills the temple. And the temple was the physical manifestation in the world of God's presence showcasing the glory. And then Paul says, do you know what God's done in you? You are the dwelling place of God. And what are you supposed to be? You are supposed to be the physical manifestation in this world today of God's presence and his glory. Now again, this is not about you. And you cannot pull this off on your own. But you are to be the, the dwelling place, that, the, the vessel, the house through which God manifests himself. You are filled with the very presence of God. We call it the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes and lives within you and now wants to showcase himself through your life. But we have fallen short of that because of sin. It's interesting in Romans chapter 1, Paul is talking about just the sin and the depravity of the world. And, and it's interesting how he describes what humanity has done with sin. And Paul says in Romans 1.23 that we have exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. So we have fallen short of the glory of God. Why? Well, because we, we decided as humanity that it is actually better for us to exchange his glory for something else. That we would rather have, rather than having the incorruptible God, we would rather have something in our own image. And we've turned within ourselves, in our own selfishness, in our own sin, in our own depravity, and now we are living in idolatry and adultery. And that is a great summary of our culture. And sadly, that is actually a great summary of the modern church. That rather than, than being the demonstration and, the, and the, the showcase of the very glory of God, his presence, what have we done? We've made it a country club, and it's all about our little group and our little pleasure and our thing, and, and we've actually exchanged the glory of God for this image. And we call the image, well, yeah, it's, it's religion. Yeah, it's still God, but it is not him, folks. Uh, one, one scholar said it this way, the primal sin of humanity is idolatry, worshiping and trusting that which is not God and so losing the glory of God. Did you get that? Let me read that again. The primal sin of humanity, the, the, the main sin, I mean the foundational sin of humanity is idolatry, worshiping and trusting that which is not God and therefore losing the glory of God. That rather than wanting to get all wrapped up in Jesus and getting wrapped up in his glory and getting wrapped up in his presence, we have says, Psst, I'll come and I will make something of my own to worship. Typically, it's ourselves, right? T typically, it's, it's our own life, our own selfishness, our own success, our own what? It's me. And I have become the very center of my life. What is that? idolatry. 
That, that I look at money and I look at success and I look at fame and I look at applause and I look at all that kind of stuff and I build my life around that and I'm literally stealing the very glory of God out of my life. Why? Because I'm living in idolatry for myself. And we as a culture are fully wrapped up in that. And we in the church are fully wrapped up in that. And we think because we merely attend church and we, we know the religious sayings, we know when to stand up and we know when to sit down. Oh, I must be a Christian. And yet you look at their lives and we're all wrapped up in ourselves. How is that Christian? I am to literally be wrapped up in the very presence of God and showcase his wonder, showcase his glory, showcase his radiance, showcase his life. Is that true in you? And Paul says, okay, yes, it is true. We've all sinned and fallen short of that. Why? Because we've made something else our God, us. And if that is still going on inside of your life, you need to be a Christian. And you need to repent and get on your face and come to Jesus at the cross and embrace the reality of his life. Because the Christian life is not you. The Christian life is not your thing. It's not about your success. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with Jesus. Which is why I love Romans 5.8. Because Romans 5.8 is talking about this overwhelming reality of God's grace, mercy, and love on our behalf. Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That here I am, I am shaking my fist in God's face. Here I am living for myself. Here I am living in rebellion. Here I am all wrapped up in myself in idolatry and adultery. And what did God do? He says, I love you so much, I can't let you stay there. So in the midst of my rebellion, in the midst of my sin, in the midst of my twistedness, in the midst of my perversion, in the midst of my rebellion, Christ died for me. So that I don't have to live in all that junk I can now be a demonstration of his life and his glory to my world. Please stay seated with your excitement. <laughs> Hello, this is great news. Isn't this phenomenal? That this no longer has to be about you. Isn't it great? Here's Jesus. Uh, he, he's, he's in the garden. He's praying the high priestly prayer of John 17. Uh, he just left the upper room and, and did the whole foot washing thing. And he gave this incredible declaration about the Holy Spirit coming inside. And in John 17, he's talking in intimacy with the Father. And he has some incredible statements like, Father, could you make my people, my, my apostles, my disciples, my, my followers, which is us, would you make them one? Would you make them united like you and I are, are one? Have you ever thought that? <laughs> Here we are in the modern church. We're all splintered and divided and all these denominations and all these, well, I don't like the carpet color, so I'll make my own church. And we're all, we're, hey, we are so segregated. And yet Jesus' prayer for us as the body was that we would be one as Jesus and the Father are one. And you realize they are one. Which says something about the lack of our unity 
But in the midst of that whole prayer, he says in John 17, verse 10, at the very end of that verse, he says, I have been glorified in them. Isn't that an interesting thought? That Jesus, God himself, is glorified in us. He's glorified in us. Why? Because he dealt with our selfishness. He dealt with our sin. He dealt with all of this corruption and idolatry and adultery so that we can be these vessels through which he wants to showcase himself to our world through. And you realize it is now possible for Jesus to be glorified in and through your life. So come back to our passage. Think about what, what, what Paul is saying in Ephesians 3. He says, here is your life, and it does not matter what you're dealing with. It does not matter your circumstance. It does not matter your trial. It does not matter the problem in your life, because God is able. Well, what is he able to do? Take your best case scenario. I mean, just give, it, give us your wildest dream. What is the best thing that you can think or imagine? God is able to go beyond, beyond, over and above, and beyond that. And his power, his very life, is inside of you, and it's going to empower your life. Now, when that is true, do you realize that he is glorified in and through you? Because you cannot take credit for this. You cannot take credit when you're in the middle of an impossible situation and God breaks through. God's, God alone gets the credit, which means he gets all the glory. Hey, when I'm, when I'm facing an economic crisis and the dollar is failing and we're not sure what's going to happen and what's going to happen to my bank account, oh no, do you realize that when I walk in peace and joy and confidence in God, it gives him all the glory. Why? Because that's impossible in the natural realm. Hey, when you get the flat tires of life, hey, when you get that doctor's call, hey, when you get that phone call that someone died, hey, when you get those, those statements of trials and difficulties and you walk through it triumphantly in the, in the very empowerment of Jesus, you realize you don't get credit for that. He gets all the glory. Now, one of the best images of that, of course, is Gideon. Well, when you look at the life of Gideon, and I'll just read two quick verses, but in Judges 7 verse 12, it's talking about all the Midianites and the Amalekites, and it says that they were all lying in the valley as numerous as locusts, and their camels were without number as numerous as the sand on the seashore. That's a problem. Here is this entire enemy horde, and they have set themselves up against Israel. And they are so numerous, and there are so many, it's like, yeah, we can't count them. It would be easier to count the sand on the seashore. And yet, what did God tell Gideon? <clears throat> In Judges 7, verse 2, the Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many. What? We don't have enough. We can count our numbers, God. We can't count theirs. But God says you have too many. Why? He says, there are too many, uh, the people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into their hands. For Israel will become boastful, saying, my own power has delivered me. So God says, we need to shrink this down. Why? God says, so I alone get the glory. 
so that when I demonstrate my life and my presence and my power through you, none of you can claim, yep, Gideon had brilliant military strategy. See, no one can say that. No one can say, well, you know, that one guy was extra talented with his spear. See, no one can say that. The only conclusion is, wow, isn't God amazing? Wouldn't it be neat if your life had that same declaration? Wouldn't it be neat that when the world looked upon your life, they were just dumbfounded? And they were just like, wow. I don't understand how you're living. That the only explanation for your life is Jesus. And therefore, he alone gets all the glory. See, Galatians 1.5 says, To whom be the glory forevermore, amen. He is the only one. He is the only one who deserves all the praise and the glory and the honor. For he alone is worthy. So two quick reminders. Number one, this is all about Jesus. This is not about you. What if you would remind yourself, this is not about me. This day is not my own. That my life is to be handed over to the God of the universe for him to use and and just to be spilled and to be spent however he chooses. Would you be willing to be a vessel through which God can demonstrate his life and his love, his truth, his gospel, his very presence through to this world today? And would you be willing to so get out of the way that when the world looks at your life, it is him alone who gets all the glory? It's all about Jesus. And secondly, this is all the time. When in your life do you get to not give him glory? Never. Every moment of every single day, your life should be declaring the wonders and the glory of Jesus Christ. I love what 1 Corinthians 10.31 says. It says, whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. So your whole life is to be wrapped up in the glory of God. Now, here's what's really interesting about that verse. I hear that verse and I go, all right, I got to get a checklist going. And, and I've got to put on my checklist or on my to-do list today, bring God glory. Because, hey, whatever I do, I got to give him glory. So I better put this thing on a checklist. But that's not what the verse is saying. Think about this. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, this isn't a grit your teeth, put it on a checklist, and produce you know, some version of God's glory. If you try to produce God's glory, you go back into idolatry because it's going to be self-production and legalism. So the only way that you are going to always in whatever you do give glory to God is you've got to get wrapped up in Jesus because this is all about him, not about you. And in the midst of getting wrapped up in Jesus, you've got to allow him and his presence to flow through you. Does that make any sense? And you have that emphasis in this passage in the word do. Do all for the glory of God. Whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. That word do is really interesting. The word do is the Greek word poieo. P-O-I-E-O, poieo. It's probably my second favorite Greek word after gnosko. Tied with the word abiding. So many good Greek words. 
Poyeo, though, is interesting, though. It's the word do. It's like do, doing, done. It's, it's, it's translated that way. Uh, there's <clears throat> typically two different words for doing something in, in the New Testament. One is prazo. The other one is poyeo. Prazo has this idea of duty, obligation, grit your teeth, get it done. And if you want a quick illustration, think of like barn painting. If you have to paint a barn or paint a fence, how do you do it? Well, you put on a list. You get up in that morning like, well, it has to get done. You go out there, dip the paint, dip the paint, right? You're looking at your watch going, oh, how much longer I got to get this thing done? And you're gritting your teeth and you're, you're, you're doing it, but how are you doing it? You're doing it through obligation, duty, have to kind of stuff. Poyao, on the other hand, is doing, did, or done. Same word that we translate in English, but an entirely different motive. Where prazo is obligation, duty, have to kind of stuff. Poyao is, it's not a have to, it's a get to. It's not a duty, it's a delight. And if you want a picture, it's, this is barn painting, right? Prazo is barn painting. Poyao is like an artist. And of course, you know, we, we, we go through this all the time, but if you ever look at an artist, do you know how an artist lives? It's like their alarm goes off. And they go back to sleep for a few more hours. And eventually they'll wake up and it's mid-afternoon and they'll, you know, they'll, they'll stretch and they'll go to their studio and they're, they're, they'll open up the, you know, the blinds and there's you know, these floor-to-ceiling windows and wow, it's beautiful. And they let the light in and they put up the canvas they mix their paints. And then how do they paint? It's not barn painting. It's not a have to. See, something bubbles up within them. There's this creative expression from within, and they just cannot help themselves. They just, whoosh, 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 and they paint this beautiful masterpiece. And if you ask them, how did you do that? They probably can't explain it to you. Why? Because it's, it's from the inner parts of who they are. That's, that's the word poyeo. It's interesting, when you, when you take that word and go into the Old Testament, it says, in the beginning, God poyeoed the world. How did he create the world? It wasn't duty, obligation, grit your teeth, pull this thing off. How did God create the world? See, something was bubbling up from the very heart of God, and he just said, wow, I have a world I want to make. And so from the internal ex- creative expression, the artist's heart of God, he pshht, Ah, it's your mom's birthday, and so you're going to go buy her a card. So you go down to the Hallmark store, right? And uh, you, you, you read through all the cards, and oh, there's a good one. And so you buy the card. That is very different than if you take a piece of paper and you write your mother a note. They both have words on them. But see, one of them is, well, I better get my mom a card. So, you know, roses are red, violets are blue. I love my mom. Woo-hoo-hoo. Right? And so, <clears throat> and so I, I, I get the card, and then I just, I sign my name, and I mail it to her. Right? Why? Well, it's meaningful because, hey, at least she gets some words. But that's different than if I come, and from the creativity of my heart, I begin to express the inner, inner depth of my, of, my, of my life, of my heart. Are you seeing the difference between these, these two ideas? Think about this. Paul says, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And he uses the word poyeo. 
He's not talking duty obligation stuff. See, everything out of your life should just come from this internal heart of giving God glory. See, everything should just be coming up from this well of, man, I'm so full of the life of God within me. I'm so full of his presence. I'm so full of his life that I just, I just can't help myself. Therefore, everything that comes out of your life, woo, gives him glory. Because you want to get out of the way. You want him to be seen. You want all the renown and all the honor and all the... You do not want people to look at you. See, you are not trying to take the stage. You are not trying to grab the microphone. See, you, this is not about you. This is about him. So would you get out of the way? Sometimes that means you need to speak. Sometimes that means you need to be quiet. But either way, whatever you do, could, would you just let your whole life just give God glory? Well, how, am I, how often am I supposed to do that? All the time. See, there never should be a moment in your life where you take the glory from God. See, there, by the way, if you take God's glory, we call you a thief. See, you're never to take his glory. You, you shouldn't turn people's focus back on you. This is not about you. This is about him. Can I ask you, is that true about your life? Is your whole life wrapped up in the glory of God? Is your whole life a demonstration of his very life and his presence? Is your life showcasing the wonderful reality of him? Or is your life all about you? When you get up in the morning, is your first thought you and what you want to do and how you feel and what you should wear? and what, Or is your first thought, wow, Jesus. See, what, what are you doing in your life where you are trying to pull it off in your own strength and your own power, your own wisdom, your own resource? See, what is it in your life that is just distracting people from God's glory? See, where is it in your life where you're pulling people's attention to you rather than to him? Wouldn't it be neat if everything in your life pointed to Jesus? Wouldn't it be neat if everything that came out of your, uh, out of your lips just pointed to Jesus? See, what if as the world watched your life, the only conclusion they could give is, I, I don't know how you're living your life. I don't know how you're living with peace and joy and freedom and triumph. I, I don't understand how you can walk through the seasons in which we are living as in this triumphant manner. It seems like you must be a Christian. And wouldn't it be neat in the middle of all that, God's the only one who gets the glory? We call those kind of people Christians. The ones who do not take the glory, the ones who merely demonstrate and declare his glory. Would you do that? You'll notice it's the same thing that Paul's been saying in every single verse of this prayer. Will you get wrapped up in Jesus? Will you just let him be the big deal of your life? And in so doing, would you realize that he is able to do far more in your life than you could ever imagine? And in so doing, he wants to receive all the glory. Would you live that way? Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we, uh, we do want to give you all the glory. Lord, this is not about us. This is not about our talent or our wisdom or our anything. This is all about you. And Lord, somehow, could you, could you get us so tight in intimacy and relationship with you? Could, you? could you get us into your word? Could you get us into your presence on, on such a level that we, we are hidden by the shadow of the cross? And that when the world looks upon our lives, they do not see us, they see you. They don't see our talent. They don't see our wisdom. They, 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 don't, they don't see us. They, they, they see an impossible life being lived, 
not because we're talented, not because we are wise, but because the overwhelming almighty God dwells within us through your spirit. Lord, this world once again needs to see what a Christian looks like. Lord, this world once again needs to see what the church is all about. And it's not some country club that we gather once a week and sing a few songs and listen to a message and, and then kind of tip our hat to God and then go on our way. This is, this is all about you all the time. And that the reality of the church isn't a Sunday morning thing. It is a every moment of every single day kind of a thing. And our lives is not just about doing religious things on occasion. This is about wrapping and building our lives around you every moment of, the, of every single day. Lord, what would it look like if you would receive all the praise, the honor, and the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever? Amen. Well, what, what would that look like, Lord, if we lived in that reality and we would showcase your glory that our lives would be merely a praise anthem to you Lord, will you do that in us? Would you start with those who are listening? Lord, would you bring revival back to your world, to your church? Lord, would you not let us get wrapped up in idolatry and adultery? Lord, would you not let, us, let this be about us? Lord, would you not let us think through the grid of how is it going to affect us and how is it going to affect my finances and, and how is it going to affect my comfort and, and how is it going to affect my pleasure and how is it going to affect, Lord, what if this was not about me? What if this was not about us? What if this was all about you? So Lord, we as your people want to say to you, be the glory forever and ever and ever and ever. Because this is from you and through you and to you for your glory alone. Lord, will you demonstrate your life? Would you showcase your presence? Would you magnify yourself through our lives? And Would you do that today? Lord, may you receive all the glory, honor, and praise, for you alone are worthy. We love you, Jesus. In your precious, powerful name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this study from the book of Ephesians with Nathan Johnson. If you would like additional resources to help you build your life around Jesus, I encourage you to check out my website at deeperchristian.com. This podcast is the audio version taken from my video series in Ephesians. And if you'd like to view the video version of this study, you can do so by going to deeperchristian.com forward slash Ephesians. Know I am cheering you on as you build your life around and upon Jesus Christ. See you next time.